Let's turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. And as you are finding your way there, let me take you on a little journey into the past. The year is A.D. 177, so a long, long time ago. The place is the city of Lyon in present-day France. And there is a young girl by the name of Blandina. Uh, She is a slave, and she is a Christian. There was an elder, Pothius, I think was his name, who was a bit of an itinerant preacher. And he went around proclaiming the gospel. And through his proclamation of the gospel, the Spirit of God brought Blandina and a host of other people to salvation in the Lord Jesus. A very short time after, Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, instituted a semi-systematic persecution of Christians. And as a result, in Lyon, Blandina and a number of other Christians were arrested. And rather barbaric, uh, they were tortured. The purpose of the torture wasn't interrogation. They weren't trying to find out information. The purpose of the torture was to break their will and to force them to renounce the Lord Jesus, to renounce the Christian faith. Blandina, young girl, uneducated, a Christian, relatively short period of time, refused to renounce the faith. She was led to the gladiatorial games in the middle of Lyon, in the stadium, And she was trapped in a net in the middle of the stadium for a couple of days until finally a half-crazed bull crushed her. not making this up. It's a true story. Well documented. Suffering for Christ. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Fast forward. Here we are living in the 21st century. Cody led us down this road in his pastoral prayer. And if you have even glanced at the headlines this past week, you have observed that 2013 there was a marked rise in the number of martyrdoms worldwide. The number of Christians, difficult for us to grasp here in Glen Rose, Texas, but the number of Christians martyred for the faith worldwide rose markedly, sharply, in 2013. Uh, One of the worst places to live and to be a Christian, North Korea. Dennis Rodman is going to resolve that for us. I won't go down that road, but anyway, there it is. One of the worst places on earth to be a Christian, uh, North Korea. Suffering for Christ. And we uh, travel back here to our little community And it's all somewhat surreal, isn't it? It's all somewhat removed. And yet I know, because I've spoken to many of you, I know many in this room know something of what it means to suffer for Christ. There is that unsafe spouse, that unsafe sibling, that unsafe child, that unsafe parent uh, for whom you are the object of ridicule. Simply put, you are the object of ridicule. You dread Thanksgiving because you know uncle so-and-so is going to be there. And you know exactly what he's going to say. You're on the university campus, and it is open season on Christianity on the university campus. It is the object of abject ridicule. You notice that Christianity in our day is slowly, if you observe it closely, it is slowly becoming synonymous with hatred. It is slowly becoming synonymous with bigotry, racism, narrow-mindedness, short-sightedness, and certainly a lack of love. And we feel it increasingly, don't we? And not to the extent of Blandina all those centuries ago, staring down that half-crazed bull in the center of the gladiatorial games, not to the extent of our brothers and sisters in far-off places like North Korea or other places in North Africa, the Middle East, but we are sensing something of what it means to stand out. Something of what it means to be at the end 
of ridicule, if not outright disdain, suffering for Christ. It's difficult. Let's not pretend otherwise. It is extremely difficult. And it is confusing. It is confusing for us, and I have taken you down this road many times from this pulpit, and I'm going to continue to do so because we are overwhelmed by this message in our day. Uh, We live in the midst of a false gospel. We live in the midst of a false gospel, which is simply this. Come to Jesus, and he will make your dreams come true, and he will resolve your problems. It is, I will repeat it, and I will not apologize for it. Anathema. It is a false gospel. It is not promised in Scripture. Christ is the Savior of sinners. He has come for one reason, to lay down his life as a ransom for sinners, to bring to himself, to extend that beautiful invitation, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is the promise of forgiveness of sin, but he has not promised to make all our dreams come true. He has not promised to resolve all of our problems. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite is, the true, is true. He has promised uh, they will hate you on account of me. They will hate you on account of me. Difficult for us to grasp that because it's not what we hear. It's not where most professing Christians live. Dare I say, it's not what we want to hear. It's unpleasant. I know that. And we shouldn't go looking for suffering. We don't want to develop a martyr syndrome. That would be silly. Uh, But we should recognize and we should realize that suffering for Christ is par for the course. The Lord Jesus triumphed through suffering. And we also triumph through suffering. Suffering for Christ. And it brings us to the passage we're going to look at today in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 24 through 29. I heard a preacher years ago. I actually didn't hear it. I read it in a book. I can't remember how long ago, but a while back. And it has stuck with me. And it was powerful at the time. It is powerful today. Frustration is normal. Disappointment is normal. Sickness is normal. Conflict is normal. Persecution is normal. Danger is normal. Stress is normal. The mindset that moves away from these things moves away from reality and moves away from Christ. And then he adds this statement. Oh, think it over. Golgotha was not a suburb of Jerusalem. Golgotha was not a suburb of Jerusalem. Suffering for Christ. Listen to what Paul says beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, And teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now there is a direct relationship between these verses and the immediately preceding verses. Namely, verses 15 through 20. What has Paul done? He has provided a sumptuous glimpse 
of the gospel from above. That is its universal significance. And then in verse 21 through 23, he has provided a glimpse of the gospel from below, its personal significance. And in those three verses, he's taken us on a breathtaking journey from the past to the present to the future, back to the present. The past, verse 21, he reminds us that we, remember, he is addressing Christians, believers. He is reminding us that at one time we were alienated, cut off from God. What was the result? Hostile thoughts and evil deeds. That's the past. Now he brings us into the present, verse 22, reconciliation. The barrier between God and us, our sin and the curse that hung over us, it has been removed. How? Through the death of the Lord Jesus upon Calvary's cross. And then he takes us into the future, glorification, the middle of verse 22, in order. And so Christ saved us to do something with us. What is it? In a day yet future that he alone knows, to present us, notice the threefold description, holy, number one. Number two, blameless. Number three, and above reproach before him. And then in verse 23, he brings us back to the present, assuming you continue in the faith. I made this comment last Sunday. I'm going to repeat it now, and I pray the Spirit of God brings us clarity in terms of our thinking. We are not saved by the mere profession of faith. Oh, how many people are lost who think they are? We are not saved by the mere profession of faith. We are saved through the continual possession of faith. Faith, a work of the Spirit of God in us, by which we are united with the Lord Jesus, and all of the benefits and blessings of Calvary's cross flows to us. Now Paul adds to that, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, And steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, a reference to the Roman Empire under heaven. Now look at what he says at the end of verse 23. And of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so I am a minister of this gospel by which you are saved. And that leads him now naturally in the progression of his thought in verse 24 to describe his Ministry. And the thing he states right at the outset, and this is what we need to notice, this is what we're going to build on. It's a wow statement, something I struggle to understand, I struggle to fully enter into, but here it is. Look at what he says, the outset of verse 24. Now I rejoice in my suffering. That is a wow statement. How how does he do that? Suffering is one thing. Bearing suffering is one thing. Enduring suffering is one thing. Persevering through suffering, that's fine. I can understand that. But, But that's not what Paul is saying. I rejoice in my sufferings. I want to know how that's possible. And the answer is fivefold. Number one is this. Paul rejoices in his suffering. He says he rejoices in his suffering. Why? Number one, he understands the cause. He understands the cause of his suffering. Look carefully at his words, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, that means his body, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There is the cause of his suffering. He is filling up. We could say he is completing. He is finishing off what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does that mean? We need to proceed cautiously and carefully. Is Paul suggesting that something is lacking in Christ's work upon Calvary's cross? Is that what he's saying? Is Paul hinting at something here? Is he saying, look, 
When the Lord Jesus died upon Calvary's cross, he died in a general sense for my sin, to atone for my sin. Beautiful, wonderful, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But when it comes to my individual sins, I must suffer. I must atone for them. I must do something to compensate for my individual sins to complete, to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Is that what he's saying? There was a film, I'm going back maybe 30 years, The Mission. And in this film, The Mission, one of the protagonists, one of the main characters, he murders, he kills his brother in a, in a fit of rage, overwhelmed by guilt afterward. He approaches the church, and in his search for truth, in his search for atonement, in his search for forgiveness, he comes to this, this conclusion that he must, what, perform penance. He had been a slave trader. He used to go into the jungles around the Amazon. They were in Brazil. And he would capture Indians, natives, bring them to his town, cities, sell them. And so to atone for his sin, to fill up what he perceived was lacking in Christ's suffering, he took the, the instruments of his trade, his armor, his so, sword, his weaponry, he put them in a net, a bundle upon his back, and he made that long, difficult sojourn into the interior to reach one of these tribes where he would serve them, where he would give himself, where he would expend himself for their good in hopes that what? Somehow he would atone. For his misdeeds. Is that what Paul's saying here? No, we can clear it up like that. You know how? The word affliction, this thlipsis in the Greek, is never used in the New Testament in reference to Christ's suffering upon the cross. It's got nothing to do with the cross. Friend, there is nothing lacking in Christ's suffering upon Calvary's cross. It is complete, it is full, and it is more than sufficient to wipe away the deepest darkest stain of sin. You and I, we can do nothing to add to it. If given a million years to atone for but one sin, we would atone for nothing. The atonement is full in Christ's sacrifice. So what is Paul talking about? He's referring to Christ's suffering during his life. He's referring to the tribulation. He's referring to the rejection. He's referring to the affliction that he suffered by virtue of coming as a man and living in a world that ultimately rejected him. The Lord Jesus Christ is now risen. He reigns in glory. He is the head of what? His body, the church. Guess what? He continues to suffer. Did you realize that right now? The Lord Jesus continues to suffer affliction. How? Through his body, the church. As they hated me, they're going to hate you. As they rejected me, they're going to reject you. As I experienced affliction in this world, you're going to experience affliction in this world. You see, Christ's suffering never stopped. The rejection and the ridicule never ceased. And Paul rejoices in this fact. Why? Because Paul gets this, and I pray we get this. The suffering isn't actually his. That's remarkable. He's experiencing it. It's not pleasant, that's for sure. He's experiencing it in his own body. But it's actually not his. It is Christ's suffering. And it speaks of the intimate relationship between the head and the body, between Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, between Christ and his people, the church, that we continue to suffer with him. Paul gets it. And so he can utter that remarkable statement, I rejoice in my sufferings. That's the cause. Reason number two. He says he can rejoice in his sufferings because of the goal of that suffering. Pay attention to his words. Look carefully. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Two little words. Three little words. I have trouble counting. For your sake. Did you see it? I rejoice in my sufferings. Three little words. For your sake. He's writing to Christians. 
He's writing to the church in that city, Colossae. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now notice what he adds. For the sake of his body. That is the church. So my suffering isn't in vain. I can rejoice in my sufferings because there's actually a, a goal to it. There's actually a, a, a purpose There's actually an objective for your sake. It's bigger than that. For the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, what does he mean? He explains exactly what he means as we move into verse 25. Of which I became a minister. You see, I'm a servant of this church. That's what he's saying there. According to the stewardship from God. So God gave me this stewardship. He simply means God has entrusted me with a responsibility. And I am a servant of Christ. I am a servant of, of, of the church. It was given to me for you. And now he makes two comments. The first is right at the end of verse 25. And the second brings us into verse 26. They're closely related. End of verse 25. Here's this stewardship that was given to him. To make the word of God fully known. Why does he say that? Because until this point, it was only, you guessed it, partially known. What does he mean? He explains himself in verse 26. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The mystery, hidden. Now, he doesn't mean, he is not saying, that the truth that he proclaims concerning the Lord Jesus, he is not saying it isn't found in the Old Testament. No, no, no. When he says it was hidden for ages and generations, he doesn't mean, look, this is something entirely new. This is something that was never spoken of in the Old Testament. This is something that was never, never declared in the Old Testament. No, 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 no. It's there in the Old Testament. His point is what? that the Old Testament saints never fully understood it. It is now fully revealed in the days of Christ and his apostles, this mystery. What is this mystery? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that he is the culmination of all things. All those covenants in the Old Testament, you know what I'm talking about? All those promises, Christ. All those sacrifices and that priesthood and the temple and the land And all those feasts and festivals, Christ, all of those promises and prophecies, all of those judges, all of those kings, Christ, they all, the entire Old Testament from beginning to end, only has one theme. It only has one subject, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's there. But the Old Testament saints did not fully understand it because it was not fully revealed to them. But Paul says, look, I'm now made a a steward, a minister of this great mystery that was hidden for generations and ages in the past. It has now been revealed to us. That is his saints. The Lord Jesus Christ, the culmination of all things in him. And look at that last statement in verse 25. To make the word of God fully known. That with the coming of Christ. And the full revelation now of this mystery. That is that Christ is at the center of everything. He is the meaning of everything. He is the culmination of everything. We now have what? The word of God. Fully know. Paul says, this is my stewardship. This is, the, this is the responsibility given to me by God himself. And it, 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 it makes me a minister. It makes me a servant of the church. And I am proclaiming this mystery for the benefit of the church. And by proclaiming this mystery, it is bringing me into the realm of what? Suffering. But you know, I can rejoice in my sufferings because I see the big picture. And I see the correlation between my proclamation of this truth and my suffering. The advancement of the church and my suffering. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and my suffering. And so I have this goal in view. And as I keep this goal in view, the body of Christ and the glory of the head, the Lord Jesus, I'm able to rejoice in the midst of my suffering. Reason number three, 
He rejoices in suffering because of its hope. Verse 27. To them. Who is he talking about? Look at the last couple of words in verse 26. His saints. The New Testament church. This revelation came through the apostles to the New Testament church. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles. He mentions the Gentiles specifically. Why? Because this was a huge part of this mystery. Is that now in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And God called, he chose Abraham, called him to himself. Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, his sons, and we have the nation of Israel. And we have God preserving his promises, preserving his oracles, preserving his great promise concerning the coming Messiah through Israel. Israel misinterpreted the whole thing. They rested in their ethnicity. I'm a Jew, therefore I'm blessed. I'm a son, daughter of Abraham, ergo, I'm one of God's chosen ones, and uh, I'm in a favored position. No, it was never God's plan, was never restricted to the nation of Israel. To all my dispensational friends out there, the church is not the parentheses in the plan of God. Israel was the parentheses in the plans of God. God has always had an eye to the nation. Ever since he dispersed them at Babel and spread them over the face of the earth, his plan has always been what? The ingathering of the nations in the Lord Jesus Christ. This mystery is now proclaimed among the Gentiles. What are the riches of the glory of this mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul understands something of the hope of his suffering. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this causes him to rejoice in the midst of suffering. I noticed just a TV commercial this past week, well put together, quite moving. I don't usually get moved by these things, but it, it moved me. And uh, it's in preparation for the Winter Olympics. Maybe you saw it. And, and it traces, and I mean, it's in about 60 seconds, if that. It traces uh, five different scenarios. You have sort of the figure skater, the um, hockey player, the, um, oh, I don't know what, what else there was, the snowboarder, skier, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it begins with these athletes as three-year-olds, four-year-olds. And there's the figure skater on her first pair of skates in her pretty little dress, center of the rink, basically cleaning the ice with her derriere. That's what she's doing. You then have the hockey player. Where I come from, the young ones, when we get them on their skates, we refer to them as ankle burners. That's what we call them. They're ankle burners. Oh, he's an ankle burner because the skates just go out and the ankles touch the ice. Well, there he is out on the ice, three years old, with his stick, just an ankle burner. You have the skier. He can't even put his skis on. You have the snowboarder. His head's in a snowdrift. He's going nowhere. Then it fast forwards four years. That little girl's grown up a little bit. And there she is doing a little twirl in the midst of the rink, but she falls down. There's the hockey player getting mauled by some big buffoon in the corner. There's the skier. He's at the bottom of the hill, but he's flat on his back. Problems, problems, problems. Fast forwards a few years. There's that figure skater again, just finishing out of the medal, some teenage, I don't know, young woman's competition. And there's that hockey player flat on his back, getting flattened by someone. There's that skier. She's blown out her knee, and now she's going to be months, if not a year, in rehabilitation, putting that knee back together. And then it fast-forwards a few years, and finally they're at the Olympics. And there's that figure skater winning gold. There's that hockey player giving as good as he gets. There's that skier just hurling at those neck-break speeds down those slopes. And the point is what? Oh, these men, these women, look at what they've suffered. Look at what they've endured. Look at what they've given. Look at how they've expended themselves. And there's this emphasis on mom because mom's there in the back all the way through, picking them up, picking them up, picking them up, picking them up. Oh, what we are prepared to suffer for things we value. Right? What the athlete is prepared to endure to get up on that podium. What the explorer is prepared to endure to go to places people have never been. 
Oh, what the scientist is prepared to endure in his search, in his quest for new discoveries. We are prepared to suffer all sorts of things when we actually value something. Here's a humbling little exercise. You can do it if you want. I encourage you to. Right now, for the coming week, boom, this neutral observation team is going to get plugged into your life. You're not even going to be aware they're there. They're going to be just hiding here, there, everywhere, observing your life, observing my life. At the end of the week, they're going to answer this question, what is this person prepared to suffer for? What does this person value? Well, I tell you, in a week's time, most of us will be embarrassed by the answer to that question. What is it we value? What is it we be prepared to suffer for? Paul rejoices in his sufferings. Why? Because there's a hope attached to it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That this great mystery that you are in Christ, it seals what? This certain expectation of coming Glory. And look at the verbiage, the words Paul uses in the middle of verse 27. The riches, wealth, exceeding wealth, abounding wealth of the glory of this mystery. Oh, and I consider what's coming. When I weigh the full significance of this mystery, this truth that is now revealed concerning the Lord Jesus, I read. Rejoice in my sufferings because of its hope. Fourth reason is this, the fruit of suffering. The fourth reason why he is able to rejoice in the midst of his suffering. Look at verse 28. Him, that is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're going to come back to that statement in a moment. Hold that thought, Christ in you, the hope of glory. For now, verse 28. Him we proclaim. How do we proclaim him? Two ways, two sides of the coin. First is negative, warning everyone. There are lots of pitfalls out there, so we warn everyone. Positive side of the coin, teaching everyone with all wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. It comes from the Word of God. Here is the fruit of His ministry, this proclamation, warning, and teaching, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So glory is coming. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Earlier, going all the way back to verse 22, He's talked about the fact that Christ has reconciled us to God in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is what's coming. That is what the Lord Jesus is doing now in his bride, what he is doing in his body, the church. Paul's ministry, the proclamation of the word, is the means by which the Lord Jesus does this. That is, Paul warns and he teaches everyone with all wisdom His goal is what? That through that teaching of the Word of God, the day will come when they will be presented mature in Christ. And so how does Christ bring about that great transformation? How is the realization of our glorification, what is coming, how is it produced? It's produced through the preaching of the Word. It's produced right now as I proclaim the Word. Is produced in that Sunday school hour as our teachers break down the Word. It's produced each morning as as fathers we meet for 10-15 minutes with our families. We open the Bible, read a simple passage, say a prayer. It's accomplished as we get on the phone with that brother, that sister who's perplexed about a certain issue. And we uh, try to shine scripture on it. It's produced as we get on the phone with that unbeliever or meet with that doubter or that scoffer. And we try to bring Scripture to bear upon their lives, upon their thinking. It's produced as we pick up good books, solid books, which expound Scripture. And the Spirit of God uses them in our lives. You see, there is this fruit, this result of his labors, of our labors. And as long as Paul keeps this fruit in view, as long as he keeps this end in view, he is able to rejoice in the midst of suffering. You see, when we know fruit is coming, when we know there is a tangible benefit, we will apply ourselves to something. We will sacrifice for that something. I was thinking this past week of uh, King George VI. I think it was number six. 
So Queen Elizabeth right now, Elizabeth II, her father, only one or two of us will remember this, was King George VI. There was a film about this, The King's Speech, a few years ago. King George VI uh, suffered from a terrible stutter. And you can find the black and white film of, uh, of King George VI. He wasn't even supposed to be king. It was his brother, but he abdicated the throne. And so George became George VI, king of Great Britain. You can find the old black and white footage of his, one of his first earliest speeches after he became king, and he's in a stadium, throngs of people. The old system, sound system, just crackling, echoing in the, in the silence of the masses before him. And he utters maybe six or seven words, and then there is nothing but silence. And then maybe another word, and then silence. Then you get out, get out a couple of words, and just silence. And I remember seeing that footage, and you just want to get up beside him and put your arm around him, you know, think happy thoughts, just out with the words. But he's a man who dreaded public speaking. The man just gripped with fear and suffered from this stutter whenever he would speak publicly. But he was a man who knew his duty. And he was a man committed to that responsibility which had been entrusted to him. And he overcame his fear, committed himself to working through his fears. And he was transformed as he proceeded in his life and in his reign as king. I know suffering is a cause of fear. We feel just like that at times, don't we? There you are. I said it earlier. Thanksgiving dinner. Uncle so-and-so is there, and out he comes with it. You know it's coming. What do you say? You're there in the university lecture hall, and your professor, Wingnut, just comes out with another beauty from left field, completely just lambasting the Christian faith, but it's groundless, pointless, and and he can't base it on anything. What what do you say? There you are again, someone taking offense because of the position, biblical position you have on a certain moral issue. What do you say? I find myself in a grip of fear more often than not. I find myself at times not knowing quite what to say. At times I'm in fear of what the response will be. It's easier just to turn and walk away, isn't it? But Paul understands something here. He understands that it is through speaking. It is through the word of God that the Spirit of God works in the people of God. That is how fruit comes. He knows people are only saved through the Word, speaking. He knows people are only sanctified through the Word. He knows people are only strengthened through the Word. He knows people are challenged and comforted through the Word. And so we're faced with all these difficult situations and contexts and conditions. Oh, how important it is to remember the fruit. How important it is to remember that the Spirit of God works through the Word of God and He has this goal, this plan. What is it? It is to warn His people. It is to teach His people. Why? That we may, we may be presented mature in Christ. There's a fifth reason. A fifth reason why Paul rejoices in suffering. It is because of its means, the means of his suffering. Brings us to verse 29. For this I toil, struggling, contending is a good translation. For this, struggling is good too, but contending, the idea of fighting. For this I toil, contending with all his energy that he powerfully, works within me. When we find ourselves in difficult situations, uh, where do we tend to look? Inward. Uh, Client central therapy. That's what we're told to do in our day. The answer is within you. You need to think positive thoughts. I can, I can, I know I can, I can, I can. And you look inside for that inner strength to overcome your obstacles and paralyzing fear. Well, you need to look within I recall my father preaching at a family camp. I'm maybe 14, 15 years of age. This is in a little town called Bancroft. What Glen Rose is to Texas, Bancroft is to Ontario. Like Glen Rose is in the shadow of DF, the, the Metroplex. Bancroft is in the shadow of the city of Toronto. Small town. 
beautiful camp there called Joy Bible Camp. My father was preaching at the family camp, so we were all there. I think I was 14 years of age. Sat on a beautiful lake, pristine. Across the lake, there are what are called, known as, even to this day, the rocks. He said, just the rocks. You talk about the rocks, everybody knows what you're talking about. You canoe across to the rocks, and you can scale up through these trails and the trees to the top of these rocks, 30, 40, I think the tallest is 50 feet, and you can jump off these rocks into the water below. I remember at 14 years of age scaling those rocks. I wasn't as high as I could go. I think I was maybe, to my own embarrassment, maybe only 15, 20 feet above the water. I couldn't do it. It didn't matter how much people tried to encourage me. It didn't matter how much how great the peer pressure was. It didn't matter how much people teased me and ridiculed me. I just could not get myself off that rock into the water. So I had to give myself a good talking to. Off I went into the trees. I can, I can, I know I can, I can, I can. And out I came like a bullet off those rocks into the water. And then it was no problem. That's the way we think at times, isn't it? Paralyzed by fear. Facing obstacles. I need to look within. To tap into that inner strength. That's not what Paul does. Paul doesn't look within. Where does he look? Without. For this I toil. Yeah, it's me toiling, struggling. It's me struggling. It's me suffering. But here's how I do it. I do it with all his energy. The his, I think, refers back to Christ. The last word in verse 28, Christ's energy. That he powerfully works within me. I remember to whom I belong. I remember who has taken up residence within me. Christ has not given me a spirit of timidity. He has not given me a spirit of fear, but a spirit of of power. And by his strength, this is Paul's point, I am enabled to suffer as I labor for my Lord. Oh, not only suffer, I am enabled to rejoice in my suffering. Now, I told you, I promised you, And now I'm going to make good on the promise that we were going to return to a statement in verse 27. It's at the very end. It's actually the title for this sermon. Here it is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And all I want us to do quickly, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is I beg of you to notice three things in that packed statement. And then I want to apply it to believers, which I trust the vast majority of us are. And then I want to apply it to unbelievers, any unbelievers who might be gathered with us today. Look at the statement, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice three things. First, there is a person. Who is the person? You say, Christ. I say, C minus. It's more than that. Christ. Remember the context. What has Paul just said in verses 15 through 20? Who has he described in that beautiful hymn? Do you remember those two stanzas in verses 15 through 20? He has described the Lord Jesus in his relation to creation and redemption. And he has affirmed what? That the Lord Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Meaning what? He is God. That it pleased God that in him, that is in the Lord Jesus, the fullness of deity should dwell bodily. He tells us also the Lord Jesus is the firstborn of creation, pointing to what? His supremacy, his authority, his dignity. He proves it. How? By pointing to Christ's work of creation. That in him all things were created. What things? All things visible, invisible, in heaven, on earth. All things created in him. For him and through him. And then he points us to his work of conservation. That Christ was before all these things and he holds all things together. It's tremendous. The one who created all things was born of a woman. Right? The one who supersedes, the one whom the heavens cannot contain was contained in the womb of a woman. The one who upholds all things was held in the arms of a woman. The Lord Jesus Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. A person, Christ. Do we grasp who he is? The creator of the universe. 
the sustainer of all things, the one who by his mere spoken word brought all things into existence, and now by the same power of that word, he maintains all things in existence. The power that created all things is the power that continues to sustain all things. The hand that formed all things is the hand that maintains all things. Here is the mystery in its profundity. Christ, a person. Notice, secondly, there's a possession. Christ, here's another wow statement, in you. That makes me go wow. Christ in you, in me. Why? Because I'm in him. I am in Christ. There is an eternal union. Father chose me before the foundation of the world in Christ. Set his love upon me. I am in Christ. This is a historical union. That when the Lord Jesus was man and walked on this earth, everything he did, Christian, understand this, everything he did, he did for us. Everything he prayed, he prayed for us. Everything he suffered, he suffered for us. Every act of obedience was for us. Everything he did, his faith was for us. His death, his burial, his resurrection was for us. And then by virtue of this third union, that is a spiritual union, when the Holy Spirit makes me one with the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? Everything the Lord Jesus has ever done is now mine. Because I am one with Him. I have a problem obeying God. I am a sin-riddled man. But I am saved. Why? Because of the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus with whom I am one. I can never atone for my sin. But God forgives me of my sin. Why? Because I am one with the Lord Jesus Christ who died, was buried, and rose again, bearing the penalty of my sin in full. I am brought into union with him. Oh, Christ in me by virtue of the Holy Spirit. Me in Christ. It is what? It is, notice thirdly, a prospect. It is the hope of glory. Something is coming. Something far greater than what we have at present. Something that will make the present seem trivial, almost pitiful. What is in store, a new heavens and a new earth restored in the Lord Jesus Christ for those who are one with him? That is my hope, the hope of glory. And I hold it with certainty. Why? Because someone is in me and I am in him. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, my creator and my redeemer. Now I want to apply that to the believer quickly. Psalm 144, verse 15. Here's what that statement means for the Christian. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? Blessed, happy, extremely privileged are the people whose God is the Lord. Christ in you, the hope of glory. His power is ours to protect us. His wisdom is ours to direct us. His mercy is ours to pity us. His grace is ours to pardon our sins. His love is ours to refresh and delight our souls. His justice is ours to accept us as righteous for the sake of His Son. His faithfulness is ours to fulfill all those promises He's given to us. His majesty is ours to make us glorious forever. His joy is ours to satisfy us now and forevermore. His works are ours to amaze us. And his word is ours to make us wise unto salvation. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is our God. Blessed are those whose God is the Lord. He isn't my God today, merely today. He isn't my God for a week. You know where I'm going with this. He isn't my God for a month. He isn't my God for a year. He isn't my God for my lifetime. He isn't my God for centuries. He isn't my God for thousands of years. He isn't my God for thousands of ages. He isn't my God for millions of ages. He is my God forevermore. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And now I must secondly, as we conclude, apply this. To the unbeliever, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ outside of you, the certainty of damnation. The most terrifying phrase, three words, yes, in all of Scripture. Matthew 7, Matthew 25. You know what they are? I think they're most terrifying words in all of Scripture. 
depart from me. Does it get any worse than that? To hear this God say on the day of judgment, depart from me, for I never, I never knew you. If God is incomparable, which he is, then to gain God is incomparable gain. This is Mickey Mouse. This just makes sense, right? If God is incomprehensible, then to gain God is incomprehensible gain. If God is infinite, then to gain God is what? Infinite gain. The opposite is obviously true. If God is incomparable, to lose God is what? Incomparable loss. If God is incomprehensible, to lose God is incomprehensible, inconceivable loss. Well, if God is infinite, to lose God is infinite loss. My unbelieving friend, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. He is the only reconciler. He is the only one who has laid down his life bearing the burden of our sin and bearing and satisfying the righteous indignation of Almighty God toward you. There you're not going to find salvation anywhere else. Friend, I plead with you, be reasonable. Be sensible. Be wise. And be reconciled to God. Our Heavenly Father, we do proclaim the name of Christ this day. And we thank you for the wonderful glories we see in him. What a glorious Redeemer. What a glorious Comforter. A glorious Creator, Sustainer. And we thank you that you have made us one with Him by the Holy Spirit. And we do thank you. We thank you because you've redeemed us, your people. And you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Make your word effectual this day for the saving of souls, for the sanctifying and strengthening of the saints, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.